In the middle of the day's garden stands this four-storied cadaver of a building. Years ago, it was a lively abode to families, students, and retirees. Now, a decrepit panorama beneath bleak clouds. Wild toad flax thrives through the splintered masonry, concealing the windows with its lady-like fingers. Some of the branches creep through the cracks, others shoot upwards across the roof tiles, dangling on the other side like marionettes. Ornamenting this somber palette of ossified colors, the house has lulled itself to sleep with memories of its past, undisturbed even by the thudding acorns of the crack-cemented path. Time has ceased in here. Every now and then, curious passerbys press their foreheads against the rusty gates of the garden, desperately squinting through the mist. None dare to climb over and enter. You too have been passing by, ever curious about the empty garden and the mysterious house beyond its rusty gates. Like others, you've never dared to enter. Until now. Pressing your face against the cold metal, you spot something peculiar in a second floor window. A tiny, flickering speck of light. Cupping your hands, you squint through the mist, and there it is again. What is that all about? You wonder aloud. The house has been abandoned for 30 years, and as far as you know, no one has set foot inside. Your curiosity finally overcomes apprehension and common sense, and a decision is made. You glance around, ensuring no one is watching, then climb atop the gate, carefully navigating its gothic serration before jumping seven feet down onto the garden-cemented path. The light in the window continues to shimmer, its beacon-like gaze drawing you closer to the forgotten house igniting a spark of excitement mixed with unease. You continue to make your way along the forking path into the forgotten realm, your heart pounding in anticipation. Your steps are quiet and soft, as if you are trying not to wake a sleeping banshee. As you pass by the fountain bench, you glimpse more fragments of the past. A book abandoned by a scatterbrained resident, a gardener's glove left behind moldy pebbles, a ghostly reminder of lives once intertwined with this place. The ghastly mist begins to disperse as you approach the entrance of the house. You stomp your feet, attempting to shake off the juniper needles clinging to your shoes, and as you do, you hear an eerie sound, the house cringing in its sleep as if reacting to your presence, momentarily awakening from a long slumber. As you put your foot on the first stair, you can feel it breathe faster and shift eyelids side to side. Second stare, and the house no longer reacts to squeaks, but only shivers with its myriads of entangled spiderwebs. Like a comatose patient, it opens its eyes, gazes around with multiple eye sockets, then sinks back into vegetative slumber. With each step up the creaking stairs, the darkness swallows you, engulfing you in its embrace. Upon reaching the second story landing, you find yourself standing at a crossroads of sorts, with two apartments on either side. Your eyes are drawn to the door of the apartment on the left. It beckons to you, urging you to uncover its secrets. As your hand reaches for the knob, you feel a subtle hesitation in the hinges, as if they too are reluctant to reveal the mysteries hidden within. Determined, you give the door a firm push, but it resists. Undeterred, you muster more strength and determination, pushing again and again until finally the door lets out an exhausted huff and gives in, with a creak that seems to echo through the entire building. The door opens, revealing a dark and musty interior of the apartment, 
Swarms of microscopic dust specks dance around you in the dim light, creating an ethereal spectacle. The particles seem to invite you, the intruder, to enter the sanctuary presided over by darkness. Your heart flutters with both fear and fascination, torn between retreat and exploration. For a moment, you hesitate, contemplating the risks of delving further into the unknown, but the omnipresent curiosity once again gets the better of you, and with a deep breath, you step inside the apartment. It's even darker here. You light a match and molecules of light bounce off the walls, revealing the long corridor, seemingly longer than the building itself. The sight perplexes you. How can a corridor stretch on like this seemingly unending? The match flickers and you feel an urgency to press on. Oh wait, there's another door to your immediate left. You try the knob, but it's locked. Beside the locked door, a coat rack stands. Its hooks empty and void of any clothing, except for a little headscarf. Glancing to your right, you catch sight of what appears to be a kitchen and bathroom area, but the scene is one of desolation, with piles of debris and decay hinting at a space long abandoned by its former inhabitants. I know it must be tempting to explore, but don't go in there. Just keep on walking straight. As you walk, the seemingly endless corridor continues to unfold before you each step taking you deeper into the heart of this forgotten abode. Walk on, the corridor soon ends, and you come face to face with a wide set of double doors. This time you can open them with ease. Open them. Welcome to the living room. Whatever sunlight penetrates through the dappled window is not enough for you to see anything. You ignite another match and look around the room. Your eyes are drawn to the rows of books lining the shelves, Time has not been kind to them, and their titles have eroded into obscurity, as if the memories contained within their pages are fading away with the passage of years. Further down, you see an open piano resembling a smiling imbecile with its missing front teeth. Then, further to the right, a carcass of what was once a desk with random wood planks covering its frame, a sooty glass vase, an armchair facing the other way. Wait. You think you catch a glimpse of someone sitting in that armchair. A chill runs down your spine and you find yourself holding your breath, unsure if it's a trick of the flickering light or a true presence. Who's there? You whisper, who's there? There. Summoning every ounce of bravery, you inch closer to the armchair, the flame dancing between your trembling fingers. You tiptoe around, trying to maintain a distance of several feet between yourself and the armchair. As you draw nearer, the figure in the armchair becomes slightly more visible, but the shadows still obscure their features. Was it just your imagination? Trickles of sweat run down your brows, and you don't notice the match finally flickering out, plunging the room into complete darkness. Only one match remains, and with each nervous rub against the side of the matchbox, tiny sparks fly out, until finally igniting, casting ethereal hues through the air. As the sulfur light once again illuminates the living room, you find yourself standing right in front of that someone. That someone is still sitting in the armchair. That someone is looking right at you. That someone is me. I am a girl, about six or seven years old. I live here. Those are my books. That vase belongs to me too. I tried learning piano once only to be driven away by its constant throaty mocking of my poor skills. I gave up, 
and now the piano is nothing but a quiet observant to my daily routine. Speaking of routine, it consists of seating in this old armchair, leaning my palms on the armrest, swooning in and out of existence. My whole existence is in waiting. Who do I wait for? I wait for her, the elderly woman who lives in the other room. You know, the locked room you pass by on your way here. I wait for her to call upon me. Until she does, I sit, and I stare at the dim window looking from the rear side of the building. I see marionettes of toad flags putting on a dance show behind the glass. I also see silhouettes of trees. From time to time, I can even see blotchy specks of sunlight slicing through the evergreen maze of conifers. Other than that, nothing is happening. No visitors and no occasional intruders, only in my imagination, including you. As the evening creeps in, casting peculiar gallows on the ceiling, the darkness deepens and an eerie symphony of voices oscillate through the corridor, the room, the imbecile piano, and the armchair. Thousands of voices seem to resonate in harmony, aware of my presence as if beckoning me like a pendulum swinging in reverse, calling me by my name. These are the voices of the Yore, of places and sounds and smells, names long forgotten, eclipsing slowly like smoldering grass. The tranquility of the moment is occasionally interrupted by the persistent drip of a faucet in the kitchen, marking each passing hour. But more pronounced is the rhythmic pacing of the elderly woman in the neighboring room. She paces from one corner of her room to another, then back again, each footstep reverberating through the silence. I resist the urge to intrude into her space, choosing to wait until she calls me. And that's when I suddenly hear it, an ethereal, ah, that it seems to originate from a distance. There it is again, this time more pronounced. I get up and move towards the door of my sanctuary. I stand by the doorstep, and I hear it again, undeniably clearer. Child... That cannot be a mistake. It's her. Goodbye, piano. Goodbye, armchair. Goodbye, books. I float down the corridor, gently caressing the ceiling with my hair as I draw closer to the bedroom. The voice resonates with overlaying echoes calling out to me, like this, Ch, ch, child. The echoes in the corridor stir responding to her call in their own strange unison. The door to her bedroom is locked, but it isn't locked for me. I open and I float into her room, hovering above the floor like an apparition. I am inside now. A faint light emanates from a lantern perched on a nightstand, casting feeble illumination that barely uncovers a few feet of the room, and one may wonder if this is the same light that beacons through the window inviting adventurous intruders from behind the gates. As I enter the old woman's room, I gaze through the sumptuously furnished room, down to the arabesque wall tapestry with arching necks of draped chandeliers. I've never been here before, and my childish curiosity takes over, urging further exploration of my room. My eyes wander down to the tattered decorations of the oval coving, where old photographs are lovingly displayed in manifold nooks. These vintage images seem to hold a timeless charm, a glimpse into a bygone era. The aura above the lantern adds an unexpected touch of color to the otherwise black and white photographs. 
imbuing them with an ethereal quality. It's as if the light itself is breathing life into these frozen moments of the past. I notice sallow inscriptions in the corner of each photograph. I attempt to read at first, but I hear a voice reading it for me. Jacob F. Haynes. I turn to the far corner of the room where the voice came from. It must be her. There, in the shadowy embrace of the darkness, sits the source of the enchanting voice, the elderly woman, her figure barely discernible in the dim light. Jacob F. Haynes. She repeats softly, her voice carrying the weight of remembrance. That's the name of the photographer, the person who took that photo. The first photograph on the right was taken in March of 1932. Me and my brother Henry, the very year he died. Her voice falters slightly, as if the memories stir a pot of both joy and sorrow. We grew up in a much larger house, she continues. It was situated by the Del Mar Gardens off Morgan Street, a large house with a big white patio. There's that patio in that photograph to the left. As her croaky sentences come to a halt, a palpable silence settles in the room. In the dimness, I sense her shivering stare, an unspoken connection bridging the space between us. Her breathing becomes pronounced. Each inhale an exhale resembling the ebb and tide of an ancient ocean, carrying the weight of countless memories. If I take another step, I will see her face, but she stops me and commands to take a seat on the ottoman. My name is Ariadne, she says. I was only nine when Henry died. She pauses to repel the sudden onslaught of painful memories, then takes a deep breath and slowly goes on. Henry... My brother Henry was always an ill boy, but before the Great Depression hit, it was not something we worried about. Father's business was blooming. We had access to best specialists. We had enough money for expensive prescriptions. Then the Great Depression came, and the businesses that we owned slowly but surely went up in smokes. The photographer in the upper left. Yes, that one. It's my father in front of our old house. We sold it the next year. I cried. So did mother. Even when she tried to soothe me. That is when we moved here. To the second floor apartment in this residential building. This is my room. Mine and Henry's. He slept right here. Exactly at the same spot where those photographs are. While he tried to make ends meet, his disease only got worse. Doctors gave it a medical name, polio. Other doctors gave it a scary nickname, plague of the century, and they told my father that Henry had to be hospitalized. Henry died on Christmas Day. His body, weakened from numerous childhood illnesses, could not withstand another challenge. He was lucky, I knew he was. Children of his age, some older, some younger. They were being placed in wooden boxes where nurses stimulated their lungs to breathe. They called it iron lungs. It was supposed to save them, but it only inflicted more pain. Henry never went through that. He was lucky. He died peacefully on silent night. 
She stops again. Emotions must have combed through her throat, weakening tongue muscles for a moment. But she knows she has very little time left, and her words, though laden with emotions, flow with a steadfast determination. Like columns of blind men navigating through the empty streets, they hold firm, unbroken, each word carrying the weight of a lifetime of experiences. That photograph in the middle is of me and my mother in 1944 and the train station. Only a few days after we received the Western Union telegram from Adjunct General, who was deeply saddened to inform us that my father, who was previously reported missing in action, was killed in Holland. The day after we received the death telegram, I informed my mother that I was joining the military. She did not try to dissuade me. I remember her look, like an abyss staring back at you. We stood at the train station and posed for one final photo for 30 cents. That photo right there. And then I was off on a train to the naval base in Newfoundland. Then, across the Atlantic to tread on the battlegrounds where my father fought once. Military nurse, army nurse corps, blue khaki olive uniforms. Then the war was over. That photograph below, that's me in Paris. 1945, late spring, flowers that they used to sell only on Rue de Leon, his door with the cowbell ring that made me laugh, I can hear it, that putrid stench of the nearby canal, I can smell it, the loaves he baked for me with shelled peas, he called it hoi pan, I can taste it. And the way he looked at me when I came by their family bakery and rang that cowbell and asked for another poi pan and the secret signal that only he and I shared, I cherished it. The alcove where we met under the pillows of lilac and my name that he pronounced so funny, Agi Adna, it made me smile. The letters we wrote to each other with those strange curves he would put above vowels that made his handwriting so special. And then, our dreams, our funny dreams that whirled in the air, tap-danced on monstery towers before dispersing in the lagoon sky. Her gaze shifts to the tall clock on the other side of the room. Despite its non-functioning state, old reflexes still prompt her to check the time. Time seems both irrelevant and haunting in this space filled with memories. As she coughs, <laughs> hollow echoes play parrot with her, mimicking the sound and reverberating through the room. The room becomes an eerie chamber of reflections, where the past and present intertwine. The boundaries of time are blurred. 1947. She carries on. The photograph on the top right. Me back in this apartment after three years of being away. Like a pebble thrown in the air. I came back to say goodbye to mother. That tumor they found in her skull was supposed to keep her alive for only one month. Enough for me to come back and lay her down to rest. She lived for two years. It was just the two of us in this apartment. Me and her tumor. We shared our days in this room sometimes walking downstairs and glistening under the fountain in the garden, me reading, Tumor nodding and asking me for a release, 
I refused to grant one. Tumor understood and obeyed. I spoke to the apathy in her eyes and to the tumor. The fountain water would occasionally splash dead mosquitoes on the gray dress. I wiped them every now and then. She would try to say something, but what came out sounded like croaking, followed by a gasping cough and drooling. And so, my one-month return home turned into two years, which then turned into a lifetime. I stayed by her side all that time, and I stayed when she passed on, and I stayed thereafter. 1959. That photograph right there. Yes, oily and yellow. The last photograph of me. The last photograph of this building, while it was still alive. A few years before that, I managed to buy the building from previous owners for a very cheap price. They wanted to sell it quickly, and frankly, no one was interested in buying an old, decrepit house. No one but me. Little by little, all residents have moved out. You can see the house in the background in that photograph. Only our window is lit. Others, dark. Like an eternal pendulum, I remain the sole beating heart of the house. Hollow echoes of the room cough harder, turning the moribund space into a compilation of sibilating blasts. I am sensing the end. Child, come closer. 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 Ariadne lifts the satin veil off her face, revealing eyes that hold a lifetime of memories. For a moment she gazes into the emptiness of the room, Memories curling up like coils of white smoke, drifting towards me. I catch them all. I am gliding right above her. I am imbibing her memories. I am an infant, popping soap bubbles. Her last thoughts are pulsating like concluding baritone of the tall clock, pushing into its final slow-motion ticks. I can hear her. Time. It plays with musical notes on her face, like a skillful conductor. It hops between waves onto the parched shells of her lips, toys with crest of her wrinkles, then gyres upwards with hissing melody of her final sighs. I come closer, closer, until my curls become hers, until my young body and hers become one. Her voice, her face, that empty apathy in her eyes, turns into a childish curiosity. Blooming flowers tessellate the raptured skin like a warm spring rain after a dry winter. The world is new again. The house takes its last breath and dies. The old woman's head rests on the armchair, as if finding solace in the embrace of the familiar. They die together, and the speck of lights float out of her chest towards me, like a gentle ember breaking free from the hearth. I reach out, and I catch it. The speck of light... The same one that you, the intruder, saw moments ago behind the gate. The same light that ignited your curiosity and made you climb over the gates to the misty garden, led you down the forking path and up the staircase to the apartment through the corridor to this very room, only to find nothing in here. By then, I will be already gone. I will have already bid my farewell to the dead house and parted with the garden and the gates and the needle junipers and the derelict fountain. I am outside the gates now. 
I stride merrily down the cobblestone street to the market square on my way to the new life. I am ready to live again. I am alive. My name is Ariadne. I am six or seven. Wow, that was absolutely spectacular writing. I just wanted to say this is written by uh, Simon Simeon. Uh, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, it might have been Simonian. Uh, hold on. I want to look this up. I don't want to get it wrong because that's, that's mean. Um, but uh, the as I, as I go find this, uh, the same person uh, who wrote this story was the author of He Who Wanders, which is one of the most popular stories on creepypasta.com for absolutely great reason. Uh, Simon is very good at writing, and he is uh, Simon Simonian. Yeah, it is Simonian. Uh, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. But he's an incredible author. Um, I don't... He... I, I probably should have asked him for any links, and I'll probably send him an email asking him if he wants to link anything. And uh, if he does, you can find those in the description. Uh, and so the, just massive thank you to him for allowing me to read this story and for him uh, being gracious enough to send me the full version because he told me that it, the full one wasn't on the, on the Creepypasta website when I found this story. So um, I loved He Who Wanders and... When I read He Who Wanders, I was still a new narrator, and I still am, but uh, I read it pretty fast, and that was the only thing in that story that I thought I sort of could have done better. So hopefully with this story uh, and my a lot more experienced ability to maintain pacing, this story sounded a lot more professional. So Simon, if you're listening to this, I hope you enjoyed, and I hope I was able to bring your story to life in a way that is respectful to you and that you enjoyed, which is one of my true uh, motivations and inspirations as a narrator. So, with that, I thank you all for listening. Uh, let me know what you thought of the story down in the comments below. I really loved it. I love the I love Simon's twist, and I will see you in the next one. Ego Volt. Anima Vestra.